We'd like to thank Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for helping to underwrite the Building Through Him podcast. In the last year alone, Notre Dame FCU served more than 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. Learn more at NotreDameFCU.com. Hello, welcome to the Building Through Him podcast. I'm Mary Jo Parrish, founder of Kingdom Builders, and today's episode is Look Up. And just so you know, you are always loved and always welcome here. So I always like to start off with some funny stories or just authentic life things that make us laugh, because if we didn't laugh, we might cry. So I don't know if any of you have ever just started to clean your house and then just been so mad at everybody in the house, like, and then it's, I call it rage cleaning, then you move to rage cleaning. I'm convinced that, you know, we know that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So, like, could we just stop cleaning then? Like, is it just insanity that we just keep cleaning? Nope, we have to keep cleaning. I've just decided that there's, like, two choices in my house that either the house looks good or I look good. Like, you know, I like can't, I can't keep up on both. So if it is the house that is going to look good, I'll at least give myself a spa treatment every day, which involves me, like, opening up the dishwasher while it's still running so that the steam just rolls out upon my face and just opens up all my pores. Very refreshing. But seriously, though, as builders, we know that the Lord wants us to claim our peace and joy. He wants us to have goals. And so it's also good to have rules. So two rules that I have in my house for cleaning, just two. Number one, there has to be good music, right? So just, you know, singing, oh, we're halfway there. You know, like just really being a part of the song and energizing. And that's the first rule. And the second rule is the toilet brush cleaner is never, ever, ever the microphone, right? Never, ever the microphone. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon his handmaid's liliness. Behold, from now on, all ages will call me blessed. The Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is from age to age to those who fear him. He has shown might with his arm, dispersed the arrogant of mind and heart, he has thrown down the rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the lowly. The hungry he has filled with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped Israel his servant, remembering his mercy, according to his promise, to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So in Kingdom Builders, we always talk about our foundation. We pray for a minimum of 10 minutes a day. That is us opening ourselves up to be loved by the Father, and that is how everything else works. We need to open ourselves up to that love. Uh, we go to church on Sundays because that's a divine commandment. And then we're staying in a state of grace. If we're struggling with any serious sin, we're getting to the sacrament of reconciliation or self-help group or whatever we need to do to be free of that sin. And then we continue to build ourselves, others, and the church. Another thing that we do is the crown jewel strategy. That's plan, do, reflect, adjust. So we take one day of the week. We suggest it be the Sabbath because that is our day of rest and planning. Take one day of the week and then we plan our week. You know, like after our prayer, like we're in tune with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, what do you want? You know, and be realistic with your planning. And so whether it's meal prep or, you know, what days you're going to say the rosary or when you're going to work out, whatever that looks like, we plan it. 
We do it. And at the end of the week, we reflect. We take the time to reflect what worked and what didn't. And then we make adjustments. And then we do the same thing over each week because we know that we're the crown jewel of God's creation. And this is our crown jewel strategy. We're worth it. It's worth it for us to take the time to set goals, to plan, do, reflect, adjust. So today we're talking about look up. So part of being made in the image and likeness of God is our facial expressions, right? Our faces express so much meaning. As animals don't have like our eyebrows, so they cannot do the the expressions that we can do. One time my daughter was explaining um, like a poor decision that she had made. She was in high school and um and I just like looked at her and I, the very um, expressive face, I call it a resting business face. Um, and she was, you know, talking about this bad decision she made. And I just looked at her and she said, mom, stop yelling at me. And I said, I didn't say anything. And she said, well, I guess that's true. But your face looked a lot like it was yelling at me. And it's just so true. It's like, like part of being the main in the image and likeness of God is our facial expression and what that conveys. Like 90% of communication is nonverbal, right? But it's not just our face. Like we can actually express even more things with our hands. So if you guys are like a hand talker, I'm on podcast and I'm moving my hands right now as I talk because hand gestures are also a huge source of nonverbal communication and they help us to want to understand one another. So why am I talking about hand gestures? Hmm, let's look at this. This is from the Gospel of John. Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him so that they could have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and began to write on the ground with his finger. But when they continued asking him, he straightened up and said to them, Let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And in response, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. So he was left alone with the woman before him. Then Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She replied, No one, sir. Then Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. And so I always like to try to get into the scripture. So think about that woman. You know, if she's caught in the act of adultery, she would be caught without clothes on. So she's already feeling full of shame. She knows the punishment for adultery is death. And she's in front of a bunch of people who are pointing at her, judging her. How would she be standing in group, you know, fearing for her life, standing in the middle of a group of people? Do you think that she would actually be standing? Because I actually think she might be crouched down on the ground, like covering herself in fear for her life. And Jesus seems like a bit distracted, doesn't he? Like he's not really listening. Um, like he's just ignoring these people who want to kill her and riding in the dirt, standing up, bending down, standing up, bending down, and riding in the dirt. It's kind of confusing. When he does finally stand up to address the crowd, he just says, let the one among you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And so then he bends down again and he starts writing again. What is he writing? Like he's not playing in the dirt. He's not like making sandcastles. He's writing something. 
And so if you've ever wondered, like, what is Jesus writing in the dirt? We actually don't know for sure. But some theologians have speculated that they think he is writing out the sins of the people condemning her, that he's writing those out in the dirt. And that's why they went away one by one. Jesus goes into the dirt, and he loves her where she's at. While everyone's pointing with their hands out to shame the adulteress, he takes his hand and bends down to write with it. And he waits until he's alone with her to ask the question, perhaps in a way to like implore her to look up and see his face. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And I imagine her looking up and seeing everyone gone. She's alone with Jesus. No more fingers pointing. No more fear of pain and death. She looks up into the face of love and she realizes she's safe. And then she responds to the Lord. No one, sir. Then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He meets her in the dirt, and he sees her, not her sin. When she looks up, he sees her. He protects her. He talks to her, and he shows her mercy. But he also calls her act what it is, right? Tells her it's a sin and knock it off. Stop doing that. And often, we too are caught in the dirt and shame of sin. And we're too busy looking at the dirt or looking down to recognize that Christ is bent down talking to us. They were too focused on the mess to notice the hand that's reaching out or the face that's looking at us with pure love. This is from Psalms 34. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Look to him that you may be radiant with joy and your faces may not blush with shame. Sometimes when we look at the face of love, it can be difficult to forgive ourselves. And St. Peter understood this really well. You remember in Christ's Passion, St. Peter doesn't stay next to Jesus, but he stays close enough to him where he can kind of see Jesus. And the women start, like, the women start saying, hey, you're one of his followers. And he says, women, I do not know him. And then someone else sees him. It's like, hey, that's your friend. My friend, he is not. And then someone else like hears his accent and like accuses him of, you know, being a Galilean and being from there. And my friend, I do not know what you're talking about. And as soon as he was saying this, the cock crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and began to weep bitterly. So remember when Jesus looked at Peter in that moment, so Peter's, you know, standing by the charcoal fire, and Jesus had already been arrested. They had already started beating him. So when Jesus was looking over at Peter, his hands would have been bound and the face of Jesus would show evidence of him being struck many times already. But what else would that face have shown the moment that Jesus looked at Peter? It would have shown unspoken love. It would have said, I knew you would deny me, and I still chose you. 
there's nothing you could do or say that would keep me from loving you. Nothing. And we too, when we're steeped in that shame and recognizing our sin, we can weep bitterly just like Peter. But when we look up into his face, we must also see Jesus' hope. His hope looking at us and saying, I knew you would sin, and I still chose you. There's nothing you could say or do that would keep me from loving you. Nothing. Jesus gave us the sacrament of reconciliation because he knew we would need it, Father Mike Schmitz. And that's just the truth. It's like, rather than just being steeped in our sin and, you know, feeling bad about it and crouching down and in fear of death, it's like, no, no, no. We just embrace the sacrament of reconciliation because that's what Jesus gave it to us for. And if you're not Catholic and you're listening to this podcast, you're like, well, what's in it for me? You can still go talk to a priest and receive a blessing. So, like, their arms are outstretched. So Catholic or non-Catholic alike, you are welcome in the sacrament of reconciliation. One thing we can recognize is that when we're thinking about this woman caught in the act of adultery, is we can imagine ourselves as the woman, you know, bent over, scared, steeped in shame and repentant. And Jesus wants us to forgive ourselves and move forward. And we can imagine ourselves as Christ, loving this woman, offering her mercy. This is beautiful. Jesus longs for us to be in this place, to be his hands and feet. And we can also imagine ourselves as the scribes and Pharisees, pointing our fingers, this spirit of judgment. And that is a huge, thick barrier that keeps us from feeling his love. And we are called to make judgments on things. It's not that we're not called to make judgments on things. You know, the roads are bad. I'm not going to drive today. I'm going to set a Netflix password on my account because Netflix contains pornography. Those are good and healthy judgments to make. Where judgment comes into issue is when we judge another person or ourselves by the sin and deem ourselves or another person unworthy of God's love or mercy. We make our sin bigger than God. And my brothers and sisters, no sin is bigger than God. I, I'm just going to say that again, just for anyone who needs to hear it. No sin is bigger than God. God is crazy in love with each of us, regardless of our sin. We are never forgotten. We are carved on the palm of his hand. This is from Isaiah 49. Does a mother forget her baby, be without tenderness for the child of her womb? Even should she forget, I will never forget you. See, I have carved you upon the palm of my hand. And so our job, when we are recognizing the sin of others, is not to remain silent, not to pretend that's okay. Oh, whatever the heart, wherever your heart leads you. That's not true. We speak truth, right? We speak truth, but we do it in charity. We remember to whom each person belongs. They're not forgotten. They're carved on the palm of God's hand. And so we're very gentle with our words. But we call sin what it is. Sin is sin. I went to a Catholic conference called Encounter. It was amazing. And I'd been struggling with feeling the fullness of God's love. And I, you know, was really just seeking out. I thought, you know, is there some type of sin I didn't know I was doing? You know, I was like trying to dig through all these different reasons why I couldn't feel the Lord's love. And I was talking to one of my friends about it, and he said, do you struggle with judgment? And I said, no, I don't. And I look back now and I just laugh. 
And he said, are you sure? I said, okay. So I'm like, I'm open. Sure. Like, I just go into prayer. And I'm like, Holy Spirit, can you show me anyone that I have judged? And there's a whole list of people. And the name that kept reappearing on that list over and over and over was me. I had to renounce and remove, receive, and then I repented. And as soon as I did this, I could feel this rushing of the Holy Spirit. And I realized that that spirit of judgment and then my lack of repentance was a barrier to feeling the fullness of God's love. And so maybe you're out there and you're thinking, hmm, I've been feeling a barrier to the Lord's love. Like, spend this time with me now. We're just going to go ask the Holy Spirit if there's anyone that you have judged. So if you're not driving, I just invite you just to take a moment and to close your eyes. And we're just going to say, like, Holy Spirit, reveal anyone in our life that we have judged. Now we're going to use the power of the name of Jesus to set ourselves free of that spirit. So we know that renounce, remove, receive, we renounce it, Jesus removes it, and then we receive the Father's blessing. So you're just going to repeat after me, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, I renounce the spirit of judgment. I renounce the spirit of judgment. So you pulled that weed, and now Jesus is going to take it. Jesus, please come take the spirit. Jesus, please come take the spirit. And any related spirits, and any related spirits, away from me, away from me. So you renounced it, Jesus removed it, and now you're just going to receive the Father's blessing. Father, please bless me. Father, please bless me. Fill me with your mercy, love, and hope. Fill me with your mercy, love, and hope. And then occasionally we need to add in repentance. We need to repent. So we're going to repent for judgment. So Jesus, I repent of my judgment. Jesus, I repent of my judgment. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. That's it. So we renounced it, Jesus removes it, and then we receive the Father's blessing. And then sometimes we repent. And then we have the fullness of the Lord's love coming into us. So all of us have probably stood in one or more of those places that we had talked about, either the sinner crouching in shame or bent over and being the hands and feet of Christ or been the scribe or the Pharisee. But regardless of whether we're crouching, bent over, or standing in judgment, the Lord seeks our face. The Lord seeks our smile because he longs to raise us up to know his absolute love. This is from a poet, Hans Urs von Balthasar. After a mother has smiled at her child for many days and weeks, she finally receives her child's smile in response. She has awakened love in the heart of her child. And as the child awakens to love, it also awakens to knowledge. God interprets himself to man as love in the same way. He radiates love, which kindles the light of love in the heart of man. And it is precisely this light that allows man to perceive this absolute love. I love that poem. So when we awaken to the Lord's love, We can look up from wherever we're at, repent, look into his eyes, and smile. We can know him and his love and smile at him because God desires us to know his absolute love. And how do we know his love? Like, give me the proof of God's love. 
That's Jesus. Jesus is the greatest proof of God's love to ever be given. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's Philippians 2. There's a part in the Mass where we say, We blank your death, O Lord, and blank your resurrection until you come again. Does this sound familiar? So it's, We proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection. So why are we proclaiming death and professing resurrection? Does that like seem dark? Hmm. First of all, what's proclaim even mean? Proclaim means to speak excitedly in public. Okay, we're speaking excitedly in public about Jesus' death. Profess means to affirm beliefs or to take vows. So that just seems really dark. Why are we doing that? Because it's not a fictional story. This isn't Santa Claus. This isn't the Easter Bunny. This is our recorded history because Jesus is real. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, born in Bethlehem into a poor Jewish family of the line of David. His adorable little holy face and his tiny little holy hands were kissed by Mama Mary and St. Joseph. He grew up in Nazareth. As an adult, he traveled extensively to preach and heal with a group of followers for three years. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea at that time, and he served under the emperor Tiberius from 26 to 36 AD. We remember the name of Pontius Pilate when we profess both our Nicene and Apostles' Creed because Pontius Pilate is part of our recorded history. He's the man that looked upon the face of love and ordered the scourging and the execution of Jesus Christ. He's the one that ordered the nails that pierced the very same hands that healed the greatest proof of God's love ever to exist, Jesus, was mocked, humiliated, tortured, and murdered by the very same people he came to save. Jesus, our Jesus, endured a real and ruthlessly brutal death in Jerusalem at the age of 33. He rose from the dead three days later, ascended into heaven 40 days after that. This is the Paschal mystery, the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. This cornerstone of our faith, the Paschal mystery, passion, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the greatest proof of God's absolute love to ever be given to us. This is Jesus to St. Faustina. If my death on the cross does not convince you of my love, what will convince you? So we excitedly declare in public the death of Jesus and affirm seriously his resurrection because the Paschal mystery is God's plan of salvation for us. And we celebrate it. We're like, oh yeah, we got this. We proclaim the death. We profess the resurrection because we're so excited. This is how we get to heaven. So we proclaim it. It's exciting. It's a blessing. So we know that his holy face loved, his holy hands healed, his holy body was present on this earth. And guess what? It's still present. This is Luke twenty two nineteen. Then he took the bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which will be given up for you. Do this in memory of me. The Eucharist awaits, foreshadows, 
and permanently unites us with the actual historical death of Jesus, but not just with him. Do you remember at the Last Supper, the apostles all shared the same cup. They all shared the same loaf. We're created for communion with Jesus and with one another. And when we receive his body in the Eucharist, we call this Holy Communion, right? Because it's the ultimate connection between us and God and us and one another. The St. Therese of Lisieux, he does not come down from heaven each day to stay in the gold ciborium. He comes down to find another heaven he cherishes infinitely more than the first, the heaven of our souls, made in his image, living temples of the most blessed trinity. So the fact that Jesus comes to us in food should actually not be surprising. In every culture across time, our connection with one another has centered around food. You're like, wait, what? Yeah, it's true. Think about hunting together, fishing together, planting together, weeding together, cultivating together, harvesting together, cooking, storing, freezing, canning. All of that has been together across every civilization and across time. Food has been the thing that unites us. I even remember one of my many food memories, I have probably way too many, was sitting around my Grandma Hilger's big kitchen table with my cousins and my aunts, and we would cook hundreds of ears of corn. She was a farmer, or my grandpa was a farmer, and they'd have all this corn. So we'd cook it, and then we'd cut it off the cob, and we'd put it in these freezer bag, and we'd dump a whole cup of real butter. It was no fake butter. Real butter in that bag, and then we'd seal it and you know press out all the air, and then we'd go and put it in the freezer. And we would just do bag after bag after bag after bag of this fresh frozen corn. And it wasn't just the connection of being with my aunts and my cousins sitting around that table doing it, which was so much laughter and fun and joy and actually like a purpose, like you were doing something good. There's a goal involved. It was throughout the year. I mean, no matter what time of year it was, it would be, you know, Christmas time. And we'd be going back and getting bags of corn. When you pulled those bags of corn out, you had the memory of how you got that corn, right? It was like, oh, like going back to that joyful memory, like I was a part of this. I was not just a part of this. There was joy there. There was laughter there. And even now, every time I eat corn, I still think about sitting around my grandma's kitchen table and doing those frozen bags of corn. It still brings back memories for me. So we know that like food's not just about nutrition, but it can be full of love and memories with one another. And Jesus knew this, right? He knew this when he spoke to his apostles at the Last Supper. And he said, do this in memory of me. Do this in memory of me. God created human beings from the beginning of time to find community and connection through food. And God has designed us and prepared us since the beginning of human existence for the sacred banquet. And no matter how much we've sinned, no matter how much time we've wasted, He longs for us to look up to Him Take his hand so he can bring us into the sacred banquet and bring us into his kingdom. This is 2 Corinthians 5. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So another convention, and this priest was telling the story about he had a seminarian that came up to him. The seminarian was talking to him about the timing of Christ's birth. He was asking him, like, why did choose Jesus choose to live and die when he did? Why not 500 years earlier, a thousand years later? Like, why that time frame? You know, has anyone ever asked, like, why then? 
The priests explained, you know, the Roman Empire had created a road system and God knew it would allow the apostles to spread the gospel, blah, blah, blah. And Seminarian said, hmm, maybe, but I think there's more. I'm going to keep praying with it. So he comes back up to this priest later on and says, you know, I've been praying with it. And what about the location? Like, why would Jesus choose to come during the time where the Roman soldiers occupied that area and they were so cruel? Like, Roman soldiers took pleasure in torturing people. They created that cat of nine tails, that whip, and at each end of the tail had, like, little bits of tooth or rock or steel that would actually were created to go into the skin so that when they pulled it back, it would rip it back. You know, they created that. They enjoyed the torture. It's horrific. And Jesus chose this place and underwent that scourging. Why didn't he choose a less aggressive reign of a different empire? Why not a time and place where people weren't this cruel? The priest again tried to explain it away, but the seminarian was still left feeling unsatisfied. A few weeks later, that seminarian came back up to the priest. And he said, hey, you know those two robbers that are crucified next to Jesus? One has faith and one does not. And he says, yeah, yeah. What if Jesus chose that moment and that location because he knew that was exactly the time and place he needed to suffer and die so that one robber could look up, see his face, and repent? What if Jesus chose all of these very harsh aspects for love of that one robber? And we can know that Jesus would go to any lengths, any discomfort, overcome any obstacle to love each of us and bring us into paradise. And the priest was just silent because he sensed the power of truth in the seminarian's words. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied to him, Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Sometimes parents must bend down to their child and actually like look in their face, get their face close to the child's face, and just say, I see you, I hear you, I love you, I'm here with you. Because there's power in our hands. There's power in our face. And Jesus knows this, right? And he meets the adulterous woman there. Jesus knows this. And he meets Peter there. Jesus knows this. And he meets the repentant robber there. And Jesus knows this. And he meets us there. And he has sung over you from the moment of your conception, from the beginning of time, he's been arranging all the details so that you could listen to this podcast right here, right now, and feel his love. He anticipated and helped you overcome each obstacle so you could have this time together. And he delighted in the knowledge that you would take time out of your busy schedule to grow closer to him, even perhaps ignoring cleaning your house, or maybe you're cleaning and listening, just so you could spend more time with him. Jesus sees you. Jesus delights in you. And he's here with you now. Take a moment and be with him. Let us look up at the face of love. 
If you would like more information about Kingdom Builders or would like to know how to bring this apostolate to your parish, please go to our website at buildingthroughhim.com and click Build With Us. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.